Hello everybody. Today is Monday, February 20th, 2023. This is Adam Olson coming to you. Man, it's been a little while and I am excited to get into the different topics to talk about today. Uh, first off, I wanted to touch on the rivalry. What constitutes a good rivalry? So in last week's episode, we talked about off the top of my head, what I thought constituted a good rivalry. I talked about uh, proximity. Okay, so how close the schools are. I do think that that matters. It's not the end-all be-all, but it's important. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I also talked about the history. So the longevity of it, has it been interrupted? Um, I talked about the competitiveness. So how close it is. Is it, is it one-sided? Is it back and forth constantly? Or does it go in waves? Uh, those are all very important things. And then I also talked about like memorable experiences, scenes, moments, anything like that. Uh, and I thought that all those brought together do a really, really solid job of describing a good rivalry, what makes a good rivalry or a great rivalry. So <clears throat> most of us know and have heard of the the game between Michigan and Ohio State or the Iron Bowl between Auburn and Alabama. Uh, in college basketball, you have Duke and Kentucky or Duke and North Carolina. Uh, in the NFL, you have the Dallas Cowboys and everyone in the NFC East. You have Green Bay and Chicago. Uh, I mean, and, and I think a lot of it, too, has to do with how where you grew up, uh, so the region or the state or the locale. I do think that it, it's going to matter more to you there. It's going to have a greater significance. But then uh, a couple things that I failed to mention, uh, but I had more time to think about. How involved were you in the rivalry? Like, did you go to that school or are you from that community um, were you a coach or a player there? Have you been on both sides of the rivalry? And then have you just been able to observe the rivalry as an objective or, or somewhat unbiased uh, spectator? Okay, so, I mean, th those all, in my mind, constitute uh, the terms for a good rivalry. I'm going to talk about a rivalry that's very special to me. But it's also just a great rivalry. So if I had to look at this rivalry and I had to, uh, I had no skin in the game. Like I was never really associated with it. I just learned about it. And based on my research, I was able to compare it to other rivalries. I would think that it's one of the best rivalries in the country. Okay. And here's an element added that I think really sparks people's interest once they learn about it. It's the uniqueness of the rivalry. Okay, so one of the factors I talked about, a real strong factor, is the proximity. All right, so the rivalry game that I am going to talk about is the Battle of the Ravine. It is played between two Division II schools located in Arkadelphia, Arkansas. Washita Baptist University, they are the Tigers. Okay, they are orange and gold. All right. And holy moly, orange and gold, chimney peats. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Corona del Sol, 1001 East Knox Road is orange and gold. I apologize, OBU Tiger fans. Uh, Washita Baptist is purple and gold. Okay. 
uh, and you'll find white in a lot of their uniforms as well. And then the Henderson State Reddies, and they are red and white. Uh, again, my apologies, OBU, please forgive me, but you know my heart is in the right place. So I'm going to explain to you why that's such a great rivalry, all right? And then I'm going to, of course, bring my experience within that rivalry in. But first, I just want to explain it to you from a spectator or an observer standpoint. So this game is played between two teams in the town of Arkadelphia, Arkansas. So both Henderson State, which is a state-funded public university, along with Washita Baptist University, which is a private school, all right, are in that town. Arkadelphia, Arkansas, a town of about twelve to 13,000 people. It has one high school, but two colleges. Think about that. And the high school is a 4A high school, which in Arkansas is right smack dab in the middle. Uh, 7A is the biggest classification. 1A is the smallest classification. So that really gives you an idea of the size of this town. Uh, Arkadelphia, Arkansas is a nice town. Uh, it is located off of I-30 on the way to Little Rock, uh, exit 73, I believe. So here's what makes Washita and Henderson such a special rivalry, the Battle of the Ravine. First off, and very, very importantly, the schools are located literally across the street from each other. Okay, so you can be sitting in Washita Baptist's press box, Cliff Harris Stadium, all right? And you can see over into Carpenter Haygood Stadium and vice versa, all right? Uh, I've been to both stadiums as a spectator and as a coach. Pretty cool, all right? So the visiting team ends up walking across Highway 6 to the home team stadium, it's got to be the shortest road trip in the history of road trips, all right? Now, so I talked to you guys about the uniqueness of just the proximity. They're so close. They're right across the street. You have to understand that students will actually attend classes. If I'm an OBU student, I might actually attend some classes either on Henderson State's campus or that are actually registered under the Henderson State course catalog and vice versa, okay? Simply, uh, so, so the two schools actually collaborate with one another somewhat, okay? But that doesn't take away from the fact that this is a, this is a great rivalry, all right? Now, uh, another thing I think that makes it such a good rivalry is the fact that the series, all right, the series right now is at 46, 43, and 6 in favor of Washita Baptist. I repeat, the series at is at 46, 43, and 6 in favor of Washita Baptist University. So it's been very close. Uh, the schools are located very close, but the series is very closely contested. All right. And then my own personal experience within it now is uh, I coached at Washita Baptist from 2009 to 2011. I learned about the Battle of the Ravine. So in 2009, uh, we played against Henderson State and we won. All right. <clears throat> and this was one of the coolest gifts that obviously I still have 
this is a ball, okay, and for all of you that don't have video and aren't looking at it, okay, this is a ball that was given to me uh, along with all of the coaches on our staff, all right, and it says my last name, the year, and then the score of the game, which was 35 to 28, Washita Baptist, we won it, okay, and I say we because I was a part of that staff, all right, uh, the next two seasons that I was on staff there, we lost, and uh 2010 was tough. We, we went over to Henderson State, and they beat us pretty good. 2011, that game was a crazy game. Henderson State jumped on us early. Uh, we came back, and it literally came down to the last play of the game. The last play of the game, we ran power. We thought we got in. The refs thought we did not get in, and Henderson State won the game. So, man, it was just what a memory uh, what an awesome rivalry. And it, it, yeah, it doesn't get all the national notoriety, but I'm telling you right now, it just doesn't get it because people don't know about it. If more people knew about it, and hopefully this podcast gives it a little bit more exposure, I really think it could become a huge rivalry just on a national scene. It already is a huge rivalry for those alumni bases and people who know about the game. And in the state of Arkansas, you have Coach Todd Knight leading the Tigers, and you have Coach Scott Maxfield leading the Reddies. Those guys have been around there for a while. Coach Knight is a a Washita alum. So it's so unique, uh, and it's such a cool experience to take part in. And there have just been so many. I told you guys about the last play of the 2011 game and how we ran power and we thought we were in. And Henderson State obviously didn't. And the refs said we weren't in. And that was that was the game. And, it, I mean, it came down to that. And there have just been so many great plays made by both teams. And it's it really is an outstanding rivalry. Uh, so... I wanted to share that with everyone. Oh, and by the way, it's tied for the oldest rivalry in all of Division II. It is tied, okay, for the oldest rivalry in all of Division II, which makes it one of the longest standing rivalries in the country, regardless of division, okay? Uh, that's that's pretty unique and pretty special, and uh, I really want to encourage people to go to that game. Um, And, oh, one more thing that I guess adds to the significance, it's the last game of the regular season. And so it really doesn't matter what what both teams' records are. Like, they're going to play hard in that game. Now, both those teams are usually really good, so that adds to the drama and the impact that it can have. All right? So... That would be my example of a great rivalry. I know there's a lot of great rivalries out there, but the Battle of the Ravine, played by Washita Baptist University, again, purple and gold or purple and white, and uh, Henderson State, red and white. Great rivalry game. All right, now, moving on. I want to talk to you guys about what it means to win a national championship for the FBS teams. Okay, so uh, pretty much every episode I've done, I've kind of dogged on TCU. So, uh, and and I don't mean to diminish what they did. TCU is awesome. And I've said that in the episodes, okay? So TCU was the second best team in the country. It doesn't matter 
what you say, they made it to the national championship game. And yeah, they got beat bad. Okay, but they made it to the national championship game. All right. So what I want to talk to to you guys about is this. How hard is it to win a national championship game? Well, Adam, it's it's probably pretty tough, right? But but if 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 the team gets the right coaching staff and and the right players and and the school commits, then then there's so many teams that have an opportunity to win it. Here's what I want to present to you. There's probably not as many teams that are capable of winning the FBS National Championship as we would originally like to believe. Okay. If I had to just look through the list of FBS teams, I'm going to say there's between 10 and 15 teams that have a realistic chance of winning an FBS championship. And when I say realistic, I mean it's not outside of the realm of possibility. If they won that game, you'd look at it and go, oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, I could see that. You know, the the ball the ball broke their way. They got a couple of calls. They stayed healthy. All those things happened, right? But the 10 to 15 number is probably even too big of a number. Um Teams that have a legit, legit chance of winning that national championship, probably, gosh, man, I'm going to say between 7 to 10 at most with that 15. What's that number 15 you threw out there, Adam? Well, I mean, if if a team has things break its way, then yeah. All right, so really seven to 10 teams. All right, so let, let me go through this and, and let me let me present some stuff to you guys. All right, so national championships, they are, they are essentially bought, okay? And, and you might think that in terms of, hey, they're bought by boosters illegally paying players, which isn't even really a thing anymore. I mean, it might be, and, and I know that it's happened, but I mean, we have NIL, which stands for Name, Image, and Likeness, which is the student-athletes. This is not just football now, but this is student-athletes' abilities to profit off of their own name, image, and likeness. Okay, NIL. And I think that NIL is going to help teams that were kind of in that second or third tier maybe raise their level of competitiveness so that they can get into that, you know, that fringe 15, all right, and maybe eventually that 7 to 10 group, okay? Uh, so you have the name, image, and likeness, but really what I mean by uh, championships are bought is what's your recruiting expenditure like? Uh, what are you doing as far as staff and not just like on-field coaches because there's an NCAA rule, okay, that says you can have 11 full-time on-field coaches. All that means is the head coach and 10 assistants, okay, that are paid in like some full-time fashion that are actually allowed to coach. And then you're allowed to have four graduate assistants and you you can split those graduate assistants up however you want uh, that are also coaches. So you're supposed to... (laughs) You're supposed to be allowed to have 15 total human beings that can technically do on-field coaching. Does that actually happen? Yeah, all 15 of those jokers are coaching in some capacity. Absolutely. 
are there more than 15 people coaching at any given FBS school at any time during a practice? Yes. Yup. Absolutely there are. Is that supposed to be allowed? To my knowledge, through NCAA rules and, and legislations, no, not yet. But there are some legislations that are looking to be passed or voted on, which would allow quality control and analysts and basically other support staff who those are either aspiring coaches, coaches who at one time were full-time uh, paid assistants to then um, coach um, in an actual coaching capacity. And really all that that means is you can have as many human beings as you want at the practice, but there's only like 15 people. This is FBS. We're talking about Division 1A. There's only 15 people that are technically supposed to be allowed to give some type of coaching instruction. Okay, 15. The 11 full-time coaches and the four graduate assistant coaches. Okay, uh, but that's just, it doesn't happen. Now, the NCAA cannot regulate that. The schools are supposed to regulate themselves and self-report. But that just, folks, that just doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. That's why there's a legislation in place. And so getting back to the initial point, uh, staffs are bought, right? So so head coaches, it's a constant arms race, okay? And head coaches are constantly looking for a way up in their recruiting departments and then just in their support staff suit. So, so an analyst is going to be someone that's extremely important and they're going to do everything that a coach does except technically they're not supposed to coach on the field. Same with quality control personnel, same with advisors, same with consultants, same with any other title, assistant executive, associate of deputy, uh, any other title you wanna to give to somebody they are technically not supposed to coach, but they probably are. Okay. I mean, that's that's just the way that's going to work. All right. And, and so hopefully we'll see some type of change in that to where they're just, they're allowed to do it instead of everybody playing this game and acting like they don't do it and really they do do it. And then they argue about who's more compliant when really no one's that compliant and here we go. All right. So uh, staffs are purchased. All right. Students through name, image, and likeness are purchased. The athletic departments don't actually purchase those student athletes, but the collectives, meaning like alumni uh, and uh, groups of alumni are, are the collectives. And then just people who are supporters who may not have gone to school there, but really want to see that school's team do well. They get together, form this thing called a collective, and they are supposed to, they're supposed to sign name, image, and likeness deals or provide support to the existing players. It's not supposed to be an inducement, meaning you're not supposed to present this to a prospective student athlete and say, hey, if you come here, we're going to give you this amount of money. It's supposed to be, hey, you're already here and we're so happy that you're here and we want to do this for you. For you. So it's supposed to be uh, more of the roster management than it is talent acquisition, okay? Roster management simply means you're taking care of the kids that are already there. Talent acquisition means you're trying to get people to come, but now you have things like tampering, all right, where you, you just blatantly have schools uh, connecting with or contacting student-athletes at other schools, man, and it's, 
That's bad. It's bad. And maybe they don't directly contact them, but let's say I'm a coach at school X and I really want the student athlete to come to my school, but he's at school Y. So then I go to that student athlete's high school coach and I say, hey, won't you relay this information to your former student athlete who's at school Y? Because uh, we're doing better. We're a better place. We're more of a destination. We put more guys in the league at his position and we got the bag, dog. We can pay him more. Okay, so why don't you tell him that and just see, just see if maybe he'd be interested in that. And then, I don't know, man, maybe he wants to slide into the DMs or something. I got no idea. But the tampering and the money, that kind of goes hand in hand. Okay, and, and so getting back to it, the paying for players is not supposed to happen but it has and it will continue to do so. It's just a little bit more overt because you can do it. You, it's just not being done in the way that it's supposed to be done by everybody all the time. You also have facilities, and that's another part of the arms race. Okay, So uh, this school wants to uh, put a PlayStation in everybody's locker. This school wants to have all these USB ports and a massage tub for the dude's feet in the lockers. This school wants to put cool logos on the lockers. Uh, and and everyone wants to have this student athlete performance center where you got whirlpools and barbershops and massage tables and of course the nutrition part of it. And it's just these facilities, man, that's another part of uh, the stuff that's bought. Okay. Uh, when So when I talk about buying a championship, those are just some of the things that I mean. Recruiting, name, image, and likeness, facilities, and then just blatantly trying to get someone paid um, outside of the name, image, and likeness. All right. So I think a lot of people are still stuck with the notion that we're all, we, I shouldn't say we, that these football programs are all basically on the same level and they're not it's like it's not even close i talked to you guys about power five versus group of five uh i talked to you guys about just how difficult it is to get recruited uh and so now what i'm going to talk to you guys about is parody Okay, everyone says they love parity, but they really don't. Like the NFL is designed for parity. That's why the team that wins the Super Bowl gets the last draft pick in the first round and all the subsequent rounds, and the worst team in the league is supposed to get the first round draft pick. And yet you still have some some franchises that falter and other franchises that succeed. All right. But in college football, in, in the Alabamas and the Georgias of the world, they get all the first round draft picks, or it just at least a majority of them, okay? So the way it works in FBS football is you have 85 scholarships, okay? Now, Adam, the rosters are more than 85. Yes, you have walk-ons. Well, so-and-so's a preferred walk-on, okay? They're still a walk-on. You're either on a full scholarship or you're not on a scholarship. At the FBS level, there's no, like, partial scholarships, uh, you might be on some type of academic scholarship as a walk-on. That's fine, but you can't be given the academic scholarship uh, to replace the 
the athletic scholarship that you would normally get. That's it's not how it works. Okay, so so you're either you're either there as a student and you walked onto the football team and you're on the roster and maybe you even play, or you're there as a scholarship athlete. Okay, so let me go through these these power rankings. Okay, I got these numbers directly off. 24-7 sports, okay, and it's the talent rating. So basically you, you have a star system, okay, and the most elite student athletes in the country are labeled five stars, okay, and then after that you have four stars, three stars, two stars, and no stars, okay. You, you call it one stars or however you want to deem it, all right. Five stars are super rare. Don't just just miss me with the whole yeah. There's a bunch of three stars on Super Bowl rosters. Blah 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 blah. Oh man, I'll get into that with you guys later. Uh, that's just you need to stop it with that. Every year when the Super Bowl rolls around, we're like we just we love this underdog story. But if you actually knew the numbers and the data, that's just not true. So. Uh, there are 32 five stars initially in every class, and then a couple more get added because people don't really uh, the the recruiting recruiting services don't remove five star status from somebody. That's because that's you know it's kind of a, an indictment on them if they do that. So by the time because then they re rank and they reevaluate and they say this kid's the 100 best kid in the country. Now he's the 63rd. Uh, now we think he's the 79th. All right. And once you pass that that top 32 threshold, that's when you get that fifth star, the coveted fifth star, uh, because there's 32 first round draft picks. And so therefore, in 24 seven sports and a lot of the other these other recruiting services, uh, you end up with 32-ish, 32-ish five-star kids. I think in the class of 2023, there's maybe 38 or 39 five-stars after uh, the re-ranking and re-ranking and final ranking actually occurred in the class of 2023. Okay, so guess who has the most five and four-stars on their roster? Guess. Yep, it's Alabama. Okay, Alabama. Alabama. Now, if you look at their roster, there's kids that are walk ons. Okay, but if you go through it, they have 14 kids on their current roster, or I shouldn't say current, I should say on this past season's roster that were five stars. 14 kids that were five stars. You have 61 kids that were four stars. And nine kids that were three stars. So, so basically, uh, 75 out of the 85 scholarship players at the University of Alabama this past season were either four or five star players. That's ridiculous. Okay, guess who's number two? Georgia. Okay, 15 five stars and 53 four stars, 17 three stars. Well, Adam. Georgia, Georgia then has less talent than Alabama on their roster, and they won the national championship. Okay. Yes, that happened. All right. Here's the argument I want to make. Having all that talent does not necessarily mean you're going to win a national championship. You will see coming up here, That, in fact, having all that talent doesn't even mean you're going to have a winning record. But it means you should. It means you should. 
On the flip side, if you don't have all that talent, you're not going to win a national championship. Now, maybe somewhere down the road, someone breaks that model. Okay, they, they, they someone somewhere down the road uh, with a bunch of three stars and a, a in my opinion, they probably have to have a like just really good coach and a an absolute phenom at quarterback. Okay, maybe some uh, some really good interior defensive linemen with a with a team like that where you're a majority three stars and a couple four and five stars. Yeah, you can break through. You know, think of think. Clemson early on when they first started making their run in like 2015, 2016, um, you know that type of team, yeah, yeah. But now uh, with with things the way that they are, I mean, the stars, the roster talent, and just the overall talent acquisition. I mean, okay, I'm going to keep going. Bama's number one, Georgia's number two. Guess who's number three? Ohio State. Ohio State. So the two teams, Georgia and Ohio State, the number two and number three most talented teams, okay, in the country, played in one of the national semifinals. All right. Number four, Texas AM. Oof. Mm, I told you. Having all that talent doesn't necessarily guarantee you that you're gonna make it there. But on the flip side, if you don't, if you don't have that talent, you're not going to win the national championship. You might make it to the national championship game. You might make it, TCU, but you ain't going to win it. You ain't going to win it. And that's, man, like, that's just that's cold hard facts. That doesn't mean I don't want them to. I'm just stating the truth. That's the truth. Okay, number five, Clemson, ACC champ. Number six, Texas. Texas was eight and five this year. They had the sixth most talented roster in the country this past season. And they went eight and five. They got beat by one point against Alabama, the most talented team in the country this season. Oregon, number seven. LSU, number eight. Oklahoma, number nine. Notre Dame, number 10. Okay, so Oregon did not even win the Pac-12. They didn't even play in the Pac-12 championship game. Hmm. Mm-mm-mm. LSU won the SEC West. Oklahoma, 6-7. and seven. When Dylan Gabriel got hurt, Oklahoma was in trouble. Notre Dame, good, not great. All right. Number 11, the 11th most popular team, or not most popular, the 11th most talented team, USC. USC. Number 12, Miami. Number 13, Michigan. Number 14, Florida. And number 15, Penn State. So you have the SEC represented one, two, 
three, four, five. Five out of the top most most talented, uh, 15 most talented teams, okay? Five of them SEC teams, five, okay? The Big Ten, so in my opinion, the second best uh, conference in the country. One, two, three, three out of 15, okay? So eight of the 15 most talented teams in the country come from the SEC and the Big Ten. Okay, And not just that, probably the teams that were the best in the country came from the SEC and the Big Ten. So, so they're not just the most talented, they were also the best. I mean, Georgia versus Ohio State in that semifinal game, last play of the game, missed field goal. You know, I mean, what, like... Do you think Ohio State is better or worse than TCU? Well, Adam, you said that TCU was you said that TCU was the second best team in the country. They were. They made it to the national championship game and they lost, right? Uh, but were they would, would 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 Ohio State beat TCU on a neutral field? What do you think? I think that Ohio State would smash TCU on a neutral field. So that's just my opinion, but based on what I saw from all of them, I mean, I I don't know how you could not think that. I mean, it's I thought it was pretty obvious. So what I'm trying to do, there we go. The Pac-12 championship game. I was I was checking myself real quick because I said Oregon didn't make the Pac-12 championship game. I thought it was USC and Utah, and then in my head I was like, oh, wait, crap. Oregon's in the north, and, and both Utah and USC are in the south, and then I was like, oh, wait. They don't have a north and a south anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, got it, yes. So, okay, uh, Texas and Oklahoma, technically they're still in the Big 12, but what are they about to be in? The SEC. Clemson's in the ACC, Notre Dame's an independent, but they're in the Big Ten footprint, okay? Although the ACC might say, well, hold on a second. No. Notre Dame, you're not an ACC school. You should be in the Big Ten, but you don't want to be. It's an easier path for you in in the uh, ACC, uh, but you don't want to do that either. You want to remain an independent, so independent you are as long as you keep getting that contract. All right, so uh, Clemson, ACC, Miami, ACC, uh, okay, so, I mean, really the wild cards are Texas and Oklahoma. And they better continue to recruit at that level because you see Alabama's the most talented team. They just signed the number one class in the country for the 2023 cycle, right? That same Alabama team that you go, well, they're not very good, Adam. They they didn't win the SEC. They didn't even win the SEC West. Uh and they, you know Nick Saban doesn't have it anymore, and they got two new coordinators. And okay, <laughs> all right, yeah, that's what you think, huh? Okay, that's cool. Um, let's talk about this. Keep these receipts for a year from now, and let's see. Let's see. Uh, I mean, look, Georgia's not going anywhere. Okay, and and you could say, well, did Nick Saban? 
Was he the architect of his own demise? Right? Did 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 he create the monster that is Kirby Smart? Well, yeah, of course he created him. But don't you think, like, as competitive as Nick Saban is, that he isn't stinking proud of Kirby Smart and what that dude did uh, to get that ball rolling at Georgia? I mean, all Georgia is, it's Alabama East. Like, Kirby just took Nick Saban's model. He put his spin on it, okay, and he refined it, all right, and... I mean, he's got that thing humming. But, guys, Alabama's not going anywhere. So stop it. Stop it with that. They're not going anywhere. Okay. Number 16, most talented team, North Carolina. 17, Florida State. 18, Auburn. 19, Tennessee. 20, Washington. You guys catching my drift here? Okay. So now I want to go with this. Let's talk about national championship winners. Okay, so first off, the top five recruiting budgets, just money spent on recruiting. Number one, Georgia, 4.5 million. Number two, Texas A&M, 2.98 million. Number three, Tennessee, 2.92 million. Number four, Texas, 2.44 million. And number five, Alabama, 2.32 million. Dude, Bama's getting a deal, man. They got Nick Saban. He's only spending he he's only spending the fifth most uh, money on recruiting in the country. But they got the top ranked class and the most talented roster in the country. Steal a steal. <laughs> it's a steal, right? Uh, so let's let's talk about who's won national championships. So now we can say we can kind of wrap this up and say, all right, Adam, you you rambled for a long time and you told me some teams are talented. In the last five years, four teams have won a national championship. Okay, Georgia's won two of them. Alabama's won one. LSU has won one, and Clemson has won one. All four of those teams are in the southern footprint of the country, and three of those four teams are in the SEC. Dang. Okay, in the last ten years, in the last ten years. Six teams, six teams have won a national championship. Alabama's won three. Georgia's won two. Clemson's won two. LSU has won one. Ohio State has won one. And Florida State has won one. That is one out of the six teams that have won it in the last 10 years. One team that is outside of the southern part of the United States. Ohio State, who recruits nationally. Who has the third most talented roster in the country? Who regularly churns out guys at every position to the NFL? It's Ohio State. Okay? In the last 20 years, in the last 20 years, 10 schools have won a national championship. In the last 20. Alabama's won six. I repeat... In the last 20 years, Alabama has won six national championships. They've won six of them. They've won six of them. Okay. Uh, They lost to Georgia, so they've played for at least seven. Uh, They lost to Clemson, so they've played for eight. I mean, think about that. All right. LSU has won three, although one of those was a shared championship. Uh, Georgia has won two. Clemson has won two. 
Florida has won two. USC has won two. Then Ohio State, Florida State, Auburn, and Texas have all won one. Are these names ringing a bell? Do they sound familiar? Yeah, but Adam, in any given on any given year, anyone can win it. No. No. What did I tell you at the beginning? There's probably, in reality, seven to ten teams. All right? Seven to ten teams that have a realistic shot of winning it. All right? And ten to fifteen teams where I, I could see that. I could see it happening. Okay? All right. Well, Adam, let, let's go back a little bit further. Thirty years. I'm going to cover the last thirty years. Fifteen teams have won a national championship in the last 30 years. Fifteen. Fifteen. It's going to be a whole bunch of familiarity here. You ready? You ready? You ready to get those feelings hurt? Okay. Alabama, six. The following teams have won three. LSU, Florida State, Nebraska, Florida. The following teams have won two. Georgia, Clemson, USC, and Ohio State. And the following teams have won one. Texas, Miami, Tennessee, Oklahoma, Auburn, and Michigan. In the last 30 years. 30. 30. Okay. So, 15 teams have won a national championship in the last 30 years. And if you did the math, if you're really fact-checking me, you would have said, well, Adam, you actually named off 32. You're right. Okay. LSU and USC had a shared national championship, as did one of Nebraska's three and Michigan's only one within the last 30 years. That way I don't get the uh, the get-off-my-lawn guys coming out there and wringing their fists and going, Adam, Michigan, hail to the victors. I know, man, we can go back into like the 40s and the 50s. But, man, look, I went back the last 30 years. You know why? Because, first off, they're recruiting 18 and 19-year-olds. Well, they're signing 18 and 19-year-olds. They're recruiting, I'm sorry, 15, 16, and 17-year-olds. So what relevance does a national championship before 2000 have with anyone who's being recruited? Besides the fact that your uncle or your father might have remembered it and told you stories about it. It just doesn't resonate. So so wake up. Stop lying to yourself about these things. It doesn't mean it's not important. It just means if this is about talent acquisition and roster management and facilities being built up, okay, and social media and clout and anything else that looks good, okay, and money and eyeballs on television sets and streaming and contracts and big-time networks, okay? All that stuff, really, you don't have to go back any further than 10 years, okay? We're about to have a brand-new 12-team playoff, 12 teams, okay? So I believe that this upcoming football season is going to be the last of the four-year, 
okay? And, and I might be wrong on that. This, this upcoming fall might be the first of the 12 year, but I believe there's one more year left on the, uh, the four-team playoff, okay? So, so that means it'll have been around for 10 years, 10 years, that four-team playoff. Before that, it was the BCS, and before that, it was just the top teams in the AP poll, got voted in and they and they played and it was like the de facto championship. All right. So that's how you had those that couple of shared teams or shared championships. Uh but I'll I'll end this segment with this. Okay, what do you what do you think makes a dynasty? Okay. So I asked a couple of my, my colleagues this question. I had two Two real legit dynasties that I could name. Okay, so one is UCLA. John Wooden at UCLA. He won ten national championships in college basketball over twelve years. So from the uh, from 1964 until 1975, John Wooden and UCLA won ten of the twelve possible national championships. That's remarkable. Like. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Like that is that is insane. Think about that. Like I just talked to you guys about what Nick Saban has done at Alabama, right? Six, and he's played for a couple more. Like that that in and of itself is remarkable. Everyone always talks about goat status. Go Nick Saban's the goat, man. He's the goat. Did it at a time when it was as hard as any to win, and he just he's he's the goat, man. Uh, and then a more recent, like this is ongoing, I would say, uh, North Dakota State in the FCS or 1AA, okay? They have an ongoing dynasty. Now, they lost the most recent national championship game to their rivals this past January, okay? North Dakota State lost uh, to South Dakota State in the national championship game. But listen to this stat. In the last 12 years, they've won nine of the last 12 national championships. And they played for a 10th. Tell me that's not a dynasty. Okay? So, like, right now, Georgia has won two in a row. That is remarkable. Props, Georgia. Can we call them a dynasty? They played for another one and lost to Alabama, right? So you might be able to call it the start of a dynasty, but I think most people would agree you got to win at least three to really be considered a dynasty. Now, think about this too. If you win three in a row and then you don't win anymore for a while, are you a dynasty? I don't know. Maybe. What happens if you win three over a five-year span? Are you considered a dynasty? I actually think that Someone's more willing to consider that, even though the amount of championships won is the same, simply because it happened over a longer span of time. Isn't that interesting? Think about that. Uh, one more factoid, and then I'm going to move on to, to some dad life, husband life stuff. How long is it before a team loses relevance? So a team that's a power and it's no longer necessarily a power. We'll talk about this more in another episode. You know who won the 1990 national championship? 
it was it was a, a tie, right? Not literally a tie, but it was a shared national championship. Colorado and Georgia Tech. Colorado and Georgia Tech, they won a national championship in 1990. 33 years ago, 1990, Colorado and Georgia Tech. So how long does it take for a team that is on top of everything, a championship-level team, a championship-level program, how long does it take that team to fall out of favor and lose relevance to where they're no longer considered a blue blood or one of the greats? Interesting, interesting thought. Okay. I would like to conclude tonight's segment talking about some dad life. Dads, you know, we're blessed. We we really are. We we got we got our, our wives who we take care of. We go out and we work and, and we provide and then we do stuff around the house. And uh and if you're a parent, you know, and you you, you protect your children and and you're just, you're supposed to be the provider, the protector, the supporter, the fixer, all those things. But I want to talk to, to you all about a very serious issue in my household. If you've ever seen the movie Signs, you'll notice that at the end of the movie, uh, Joaquin Phoenix ends up taking a baseball bat to the alien that is in his house. And uh, his mother is quoted with saying swing away and he's swinging away and as he hits the alien and bashes the alien's skull in the alien gets knocked over and what falls on the alien water well where did all those glasses of water come where'd they come from they were undrank half full if you're an optimist or half empty if you're a pessimist or just unused if you're a realist, water, just chilling around the house. Mel Gibson, how did you allow your family to have all that unused water just sitting in those glasses around the house? The point of that part of the movie was everything happens for a reason. There's a purpose for it. Everything led up to this moment. And those glasses of water were supposed to be there because when the alien gets knocked over and the water falls on the alien, it kills the alien. The aliens are, they have all this technology and they're invading our planet and they're taking over our, our civilization. And yet, if you dump water on that alien, he's done. Sometimes in my household, I feel like we are signing up for the sequel to Signs. Sometimes in my household, I feel like with all the undrank or half-drank cans of seltzer and cups of water or apple juice, that we're just another scene in the movie of signs. And, And I'm just now, I keep thinking to myself, man, either Ashton Kutcher is gonna pop out somewhere with a camera and tell me I'm getting punked, or there's going to be an alien, and I'm going to have to take my youngest daughter's softball bat and bash that alien. And uh, LaCroix coconut seltzer is going to fall on that alien and dissolve its face. Because I don't know how many more cans of seltzer 
and cups of water can be just left in any catch-all item of furniture in my house. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, and for that matter, dads, you'll get this. We are also by default the the, the uh, human garbage disposals of our of our house. I think that comes from seeing unfinished food and not wanting to waste it, as well as just being like, that looks kind of delicious. Let me get that. Uh, yeah. So think about that. Dads, can you relate to that? All, all these these just half drank or undrank. My, my wife likes to take like two sips. I got. I love you, Becky, but two sips. I just walk by. I'm like, hmm, there we go. I feel like Homer Simpson. Ooh. And, and then I basically get a full uh, LaCroix seltzer. So, all right. We covered a lot. We covered rivalries uh, and the unique rivalry of uh, the Battle of the Ravine, the oldest Division II rivalry in the country. We covered how difficult it is to win a national championship and that you really just have to be talented to even have a shot. That doesn't mean you're going to win it, but you do need to have that level of talent in order to have a chance to win it. Okay, well, we're going to talk later about like has-beens, uh, never was, that's that mighty duck. You're not even a has-been, you're never was, the mighty duck quote. Uh, wannabes, all those things, okay, uh, as far as teams. But it is an arms race, and you really do have to buy yourself a national championship, or you at least have to be willing to play ball. Okay, and then finally, we simply talked about signs. We talked about all these undrank, unfinished drinks, beverages in my house. And so... Uh, from the Olson Family Complex in Waxahachie, Texas, uh, I would like to leave you tonight and say thank you so much for watching and listening. Please rate, review, subscribe, follow, uh, email me at footballandotherthings1 at gmail.com. All right. And uh, man, where is it? Where's my? There it is. You guys see this right here? Here we go. And in the background. All right. That's Corona Del Sol, man. 1000 East Knox, 1001 East Knox Road. Stand up. Coach Barrow over at Corona. I dare you to find somebody who's hyping up uh, the orange and gold as much as I am. All right. Y'all have a great night. Mom, Dad, I love you.